Um, as Pip said, I, I did ask to find out who I was talking to today, because uh, tomorrow I, I've got a very easy assignment, because I'm just talking to ten English teachers, and I know I can do you lot, you're <laughs> varied, it would be, uh, I think, uh, a starting point, your backgrounds, your interests, and, and, and so what I'd like to start with, I'd like you to get into groups of twos and threes, and, and this is, I'm going to talk about two outreach projects. Uh, one is taking classical language into schools. One is taking a, an aspect of classical literature into schools. I was a teacher until 1991. I then worked in teacher training for 17 years, um, and I've been involved in a, one big IT project. Four and a half million pounds is a lot in classics in terms of um, uh, development money. Uh, and one very low-level one, one in secondary, one in primary, so there are quite a lot of things. Now, clearly, you've got to extract from what I say things that apply to you, but I'd like to try... I don't want to go into too much classical detail because I think that will get in the way of you making more generic conclusions about what I say. But what would be helpful is if in twos and threes you drew up three issues which you hope I may cover in the course, and it could be to do with research, it could be to do with working in the classroom, it could be to do with subjects, but it doesn't matter what it is, but if I have an idea about what you're hoping to get out of the session, then I can tailor, I hope, what I say in order to meet your needs, and at the end we can visit the list and see if I've covered any of them, or 10% of them, a quick impact assessment at the end. So I'm going to give you two or three minutes in twos and threes, just, and, you, and you, if you know people already, then it may be very quick, just three aspects of digital humanities and outreach and public engagement that you're hoping I'm going to cover in some way this morning. Okay. Order, order. Ah. <laughs> Whoa. So. Can we start over here with things, the issues you'd like to see addressed amongst the three of you, what things came up? Um, Anything, any others out there that haven't been covered so far? I'm, I'm feeling reasonably happy at the moment that I can cover quite a bit of that. Okay, let's start. There. We'll start with language, I think. We'll start with Latin. Um, and I'm going to start with a very practical thing. I want to sort of start by thinking about seeds of projects. How do, how do I end up being involved in a four and a half million pound project. And it started with a very simple thing. Uh, I looked as part of my job as a teacher trainer at statistics of numbers of people taking public examinations. Because this is an indication of our subject's popularity, or not. So here we have the figures. For those who are not UK educated, this is a public examination taken at 16. Um, and normally students will take between 5 and 10 or 11, very able students might take 12 of them. Um, there is a national curriculum which sort of sorts out 8 or 9 of them, and then there are options on top. Okay, so between the years of 1988 and uh, 1998, we have a drop of over 30% in the number of people taking Latin at school, at examination level at 16. Now, that information is not terribly helpful. I mean, you can say, gosh, that's not good. <coughs> why do you think, can anyone suggest a reason why in, in those 10 years there was a drop of over 30%? Uh, I would say from some experience of teaching that it's uh, political agendas 
about what's useful in schools and what subjects are useful. So it, it, it's getting marginalised. Right. Any other suggestions? Isn't, isn't teachers retiring? And, and new teachers with the right skills not coming into the workforce? Right. That's another possibility. The actual workforce, political pressures, any other generic thing? Is that why the grammar schools sensible and in a way that the links with that was actually in 76 so but it is absolutely connected with a policy an educational and national policy what's interesting and the reason I'm looking at this because I also want to think about data and how we use data it's much more interesting when we look at different types of school and what happened in that period so there are non-selective state schools and they drop from nearly 5,000 to 2,000 and then if we look at selective schools, they started uh, a thousand lower and they've ended up roughly the same place. And then if we put in independent schools, we then get quite an interesting graph actually, it's sort of up and downish a bit, but starting point and finishing point not very different. Okay, this talk is called exclusively for everyone. It is actually, it was a Marks and Spencers. Uh, advertising tag at the beginning of the 21st century and I thought it's quite an interesting because in a way classics has partly branded itself as an exclusive subject I've interviewed people who said they like doing it at sixth form level because there are only three of them doing it I say that's bad news for classics <laughs> to promote ourselves the fewer the people in it the better is not a good way to survive so that the, the exclusivity for everyone this idea um, of exclusivity is reinforced by these sorts of figures that actually what we're saying is and particularly if we look at it in a slightly different way the pie chart there shows you the percentage of children at 16 who are in non-selective schools 90% grammar schools because there are still some surviving that is selective schools 3% and independent schools 7% and if we then look at the pie chart in uh, 1998 we can see that even at that stage independent schools are taking up nearly 50% of entries while they're only 7% of the school population in terms of overall numbers and if we fast forward to 1993 that's leapt to 62% and if we look forward again okay so by 1998 we've gone to two-thirds of students taking this examination are from independent schools. We've gone from under a half to two-thirds in ten years. And the, uh, the reason is very, very simple, which is the national curriculum. Because in 1988, the government introduced those subjects which were compulsory. Independent schools never had to follow the national curriculum, so that makes life easy. Um, and if what so someone was talking about is how you get this subject in when they're already having to do science, maths, uh, RE, modern language, and so on and so forth, how do you shoehorn it in? Now, if you've got very able students, you can get away with less teaching time per subject and have additional options. That is one solution. But for the average bog-standard comprehensive, how are they going to fit this subject in? Okay, so that is one of the challenges. What we know is, as we can see from the figures, the result was, over a 10-year period, a significant drop 
in the number of students who were doing it. Okay, so here I am, teacher trainer, and I'm thinking, mm, can anything be done about this? Okay, so we'll think about that in a second. Uh, and I want to think of it in the context of humanities and digital humanities because we had a national curriculum that was, let's be clear about it, anti-humanities. I don't think there's any other way of putting it. When it was reviewed in 1993 by Sir Ron Deering, he famously said he saw no reason why any child should have to study history after the age of 14. And I think we don't need to go any further than that for thinking about the angle that we're talking about. And of course this whole imperative about having a national workforce that is computer literate. I mean, this is completely an aside, but I think it is barking mad that six-year-olds are going to be taught computer programming. Just like, I don't think that when I would get into a car, I want to drive a car. I don't care what happens underneath the bonnet. Now, we need 10% of the population who do know how it is. I just simply do not accept that all children should be. And it's a problem for me. I think we want to teach people how to make use of this fantastic tool we have. And we want people, yes, we do want people who can be our programmers of tomorrow. But to say every, and this of course is the problem with the national curriculum where everybody has to do it. Okay, so funnily enough at this time, uh, you can't see it very clearly, connecting the learning society, Tony Blair's uh, clarion call for how the introducing the national group for learning. This was published in 98 and about, well I'll just give you a little quote from it. Here we go. Uh, the grid will be a way of finding and using online learning and teaching materials. It will help users find their way around the wealth of content, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So here I am in 1998 thinking, oh, that's interesting, because it was, I was very interested in the question that was asked at the end of the last session about funding and projects. It's no good having a project if you haven't got someone who's going to pay well with it. You need money. And often you have to do something for nothing in order to get something for something. And this is all, this is really what I'm going to talk about. So in 1999, I launched the Cambridge Online Latin Project. Now I want you to go back into your threes, and I want you to ask yourself the question, what sort of role do you think technology might have had in teaching children in this school here where there is no Latin teacher? This is a French teacher. Uh, giving out biscuits, um, uh, what do you think they were being offered and where did information technology fit into it? I'll show you what we've got. They had a book, the Cambridge Latin course. I know you look as though you're about to suck your thumb and you want to take it home with you, don't you? Okay, the Cambridge Latin course. And interestingly, one of the sort of subtexts of what I'm going to say today is that the textbook is a brilliant piece of technology. When we did research into whether, the, with, actually with this student cohort a, bit, a year later, about if they could only have electronic resources or a textbook, which would they rather have, over 50% said they'd rather have a textbook. It's self-enclosed, they know the geography of it, I mean, there are all sorts of ways, and, and it's easy to carry about, well actually this one's a bit big, but I mean, so there are lots of things about it. So they had that, and they're doing Latin here with someone who's not a Latin teacher, what's going on? You can have a look at the picture if you like. Um, I think I've probably got it, we're going to remove that. So you can actually have a look. Here's actually a modern languages and business room I think they're actually in. Um, but that won't help. 
What would you, if you were in 1998 thinking about a Latin course which teaches, I have to say not just Latin but cultural background as well to the eruption of Vesuvius and things like that, what would you think what would be the role of digital resources, of digital communication and these students? So what, so what year? They it? are year nine, that is 14 year olds. And what year was the project? 1999. Right. So you wouldn't have had e-textbooks? No. No, so exactly. And you wouldn't have schools which had guaranteed internet, you don't today, so, but even then, say, that this class had one email address for all of them. Yeah. So that would be a practical issue with, yeah. uh, with it. But what role That's do you think, what sort of, uh, just in twos and threes, just for two minutes, what would you would like to have had digitised, or tools would you have liked, or how do you think they communicated with a subject, you know, anything that you can think that ICT might be involved in this class? Okay, it's clear you should have been involved in the project from the outset. You've clearly got lots of ideas. Uh, suggestion, we'll start over at the back there, actually. Have you got any suggestions? Um, the answer, uh, well, I'll show you. Uh, here's, there were two schools we worked with. I worked with two schools, and, uh, and you can see the, the textbook was really what they had. And in this school, they did have individual emails. And actually what they did was they typed and sent it to one of my PGCE trainees. I had nine PGCE trainees, I had 55 students roughly, and each one acted as a personal tutor. So, but the, in the other school, they either had to sort out the timing so they were allowed to send the email to their e-tutor, or they did it from home. And that was pretty much the sum total of the technology that we could use at that stage. It was, ex and the teachers, would not, had not used email in one case. So it's, we have to realise just how fast things have moved in 15 years. The, and future-proofing is such a difficult task uh, in this field because things, I mean, well, we'll come on to the website, which alone is problematic. So really what they did, and how do you persuade people? Your question was how do you get them interested and enthused was we organised a trip to Pompeii. Uh, so they all, the two schools both went together and the PGCE trainees at the end of it, they went and we spent a week looking around the remains and when we asked them at the end of the course what they'd enjoyed about Latin, it was the cultural background. And that's just the way, it, they, some of them really liked the Latin and in fact um, the next year we did it, we started with 30 and nine of them went through to GCSE, I taught them by video conferencing at that stage uh, and email marking uh, and some face-to-face -face, because as it happens I did have a vested interest in the one school because my son was a student there and I thought it'd be good if they had Latin there but that's beside the point. Uh, but we really had very low-level technology. The interesting thing and it was the question that was asked this morning about whether, whether projects were luck or built on things was that on the 31st of January 2000, when we were three months into the project, this appeared on the front page of the Times. Internet gives Latin lovers a new lease. They love Latin as for titles. Latin lovers, they think, is very funny. Actually. Yeah, anyway, um, they also like to have all the, all the phrases that you can say, you know, what's cyberspace in Latin? Well, you know, <laughs> all very tight. But the fact of the matter was, just so happened that it was one of those days when there wasn't much in the news. And they printed us on the front page, 
uh, vestigial website, kaikilius.com, got 30,000 hits in one day, which in 2000 was a lot. It brought the server to a standstill. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was better dissemination than I, sitting in Cambridge, could ever have imagined. There was an immediate problem, which is it created an expectation that people were suddenly going to be able to learn Latin on the internet. And I got people emailing from Sydney, Australia, saying, great, when can I start? <laughs> so I said, hold on. <laughs> and interestingly, on the same day, this appeared in, um, the, in the newspaper. This was the Times Educational Supplement, advertising an ICT-based Key Stage 3 education, setting up and managing a new educational service, invitation of expressions of interest which doesn't look very interesting, it was actually a £5 million project for Japanese maths and Latin. <coughs> and the reason it was Latin was included was for the very reason that you gave, which was a perceived, and indeed an actual, shortage of teachers. It was clear from our research that it wasn't lack of interest that made people not do Latin, but lack of access. So I... <laughs> It, there were people who wanted to do Latin, and they were in a, either in a school where there was no Latin teacher, or they were in a school where there had been Latin, but the timetable made it such that you couldn't do it. But any number, of, but it wasn't actually lack of interest. Now, if, I mean, it's only rather blurry, so you won't see. But actually, what it was really interested—it wasn't interested in people like me. It was interested in major companies and trying to get them to develop the technology which the government... So it was sort of a PFI scheme, really. They wanted private companies to seed fund the research into how you could make use of the National Grid for Learning for either subjects which were very rare, like Japanese, and might have specific issues to do with font and so on. Mathematics, because there is a chronic shortage of mathematics teachers, and also because there was a perception there were a lot of things that could be done at that stage particularly through ICT. And Latin, how it came to be there, well, it's, um, it's a very long story, won't go there now. But I want you to think about what it must have been like for us, because this project that I ran was under the auspices of, of the, uh, the head organisation of this, the Cambridge School Classics project, and I was employed as the director of it. Um, I got no time at all. I was training uh, PGCE teachers. I also taught in the Faculty of Classics, Latin and Greek, uh, first and second year undergraduates. So anyway, the result was that we ended up in a partnership with Granada Television, who created a sub-company called Granada Result. And they were actually the reason that uh, this had been set up, because they'd done some work in this sort of field. And CUP, because you cannot, digital publishing is no different from any other publishing. There are legal issues concerned. We could do nothing with the textbook unless CUP said we could, and ourselves. So you already have an interesting group. A media company, a very traditional university-based publishing house, and we, as a very, very tiny, employing two part-timers, subject specialist, curriculum development organisation. So I'm just going to list the challenges. I'm really aware of time. One was that the aims had changed because we were to, this was not about delivery, it was about creating the material which we then delivered. So that was a big issue. The second was that we were, t it said they wanted, it, they didn't want you to play safe. 
Now, we were doing something, and we had kids we were teaching, and you don't experiment on them. They wanted to get results, as it were. So that's a very difficult balance in this sort of project, is getting it right, so that you don't forget that your trial students are real students, <laughs> and they have needs as well. So that was two things. The scale was alarming. We went from two schools, which were in 15 miles of where I lived, to 21 schools spread from Newcastle down to Portsmouth. It was all over the place. 16 of them had no Latin teachers, or had no Latin on timetable, and there was someone on the staff who was prepared to give it a go, and five were existing ones. Uh, we went up to a team of over 20 just at the Cambridge School Classics project and over 50 in, in the organisation as a whole and we created uh, 800, 800 electronic resources. These include three-minute clips of helicopters flying over Pompeii, they include electronic text. They, I'm not going to show you them, uh, you can see them if you buy the DVD, I didn't say that. Um, and, and then there's complexity because there was, this, there was a technical issue. What they want, what Granada wanted to do was to have the content shipped out in, in these days in CDs. DVDs really weren't used with computers at that stage. But the, the course they followed, because we were asked to develop a course that could both be used by teachers with Latin students in their classroom and with students who didn't have access to a Latin teacher. So we had to create a course to talk them through it and we had to do it for independent learners who weren't in the school community at all. So we had three different groups of people to address. Uh, and that's, yep, the target audience had varied. I've listed them. And then there was the question of the organisation. Because the computer programmer was in Newcastle. Granada's television crew were in Leeds. The management people were on the South Bank in London. And we were in Cambridge. Technology was sort of useful in terms of video conferencing, but only sort of. I, 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 has anyone done video conferencing here? Yeah, it's a funny old business. Mm -hmm. And it's a funny old business. I, I used to sit in a room on Tuesday mornings. I was always angry with Granada. I, I was, it was a permanent mode. But occasionally I was extraordinarily angry. And I used to have to tell them to look closely at the monitor so they could see my neck pulsing. Because <laughs> you couldn't see how red my face was. I, I'd say, I just want to get, have a good look because I'm sensationally angry. Because they were all, anyway, they're fine people to work with. Very happy partnership. <clears throat> okay, so if I, and this is a slide I've nicked from somewhere else. I'll just show you just how complicated it was. This is the sort, I'm just putting things down, you'll see, because we had actors. And there was a whole issue about whether you have actors who are actors who learn to speak Latin, or you start with Latin people and turn them into actors. So mayhem on that front for reenactions. Then we've got e-tutors and someone who organised the e-tutors. And then we, hold, we had revision editors, we had... So it was... Um, I can't even remember what RTM stands for. I clearly <laughs> erased it from my mind. But I thought, I'm going to show you. I don't think I've finished yet, actually, have I? Oh, yes, I have. God, that's a relief. Anyway, it brings me out of sweat just looking at it. <laughs> so, it was a huge operation. And actually what we had to do, we took the Cambridge Latin course and we created resources. And every two weeks we had to produce the resources for a stage. It's broken up into 12 chapters. So in 24 weeks we had to produce video electronic resources. We had to write the, the, the course that the kids were following. And we had 12 months. 
and the, the project was only signed in July and the students started in September so we had nothing for them in September and we had to start from stage four and do it after oh, it's like Wallace and Gromit where they put down that track and then the trains going and it's just anyway if you know what I mean so I'm not going to go into great detail but I do want you to think about what it means it's a great thing when suddenly you've got gone from having a £10,000 project to having a £2.5 million project which happened overnight but there's a really fundamental thing which we can't talk about here because we haven't got time about the relationship between actually the means of delivery a Granada company that really were three people when all was said and done who knew nothing and to be fair to them the person the the leader at their end made one crucial decision was that all final decisions about content rested with me as the subject specialist if that hadn't happened, there would have been mayhem. Uh, and there were people who didn't like that, like Granada producers who were doing these mini videos and wanted to write the script. And I had someone, Roger, who was an absolute expert, and they gave Roger the script. And he said, no, it's no good. Here's the one you're going to use. And that didn't go down. We had friendly and frank discussions. But I thought it would be useful to see what actually came out of it. So um, what actually came out of it is now a DVD, of course, now, much easier, um, uh, which uh, is basically a way of working through the Cambridge Latin course, but with exercises and so on. I'll give you just a little bit of a feel for it. And what also grew out of it um, was a website, <laughs> not surprisingly, um, but it grew alongside the DVD because there, of course, there are all sorts of practical issues with this DVD, and certainly in 2001 too, there were about how many computers, I mean, how many uh, homes would have them, and the expense of buying it. And we had some resources we wanted to make freely available to kids at home. These were basically for selling to schools and to e-tutors and things. And the question is, what can a kid at home who's doing their homework access? So we developed this, but this costs 70,000 pounds just to develop a website uh, by the time we've had the bells and whistles. I'll talk about the bells and whistles in a second. And this is the website as it looks now, because of course future-proofing comes back because it's now got to be tablet usable. And so the whole principles of actual design have changed. Um, there are all sorts of problems because we had flash uh, uh, movies and the problems of flash and iPads, and it, it goes on and on. There are very fundamental practical problems about delivering even what is apparently simple data. If it's more than just a photograph, then it begins to immediately to get quite challenging. And what the website actually does is it provides, this is one part of the site is for people wanting to start up Latin and talks them through the practicalities of what they may need. Another part is independent learners. These are people who've just browsed the web. This chap here is a retired doctor in the West Country. I did, I did e-tutoring when we first started, and my first group was a, a retired doctor in Sydney, Australia, an American lawyer living in the Virgin Islands, a retired civil servant living in Newcastle, and this doctor. Uh, and for two years I taught them online, and it was a really amazing experience, actually, and very good for me to find out what the challenges were. Uh, marking work on with, via digitally is really a problem. It's so easy on a piece of paper. You scribble and scroll, write notes, as soon as you get to it in electronic form, unless you take it, print it, scan it, and, and so on, it can be a pain in the neck. So we had to develop software for that. And interestingly, uh, today, 
There are, as I spoke, to, I was in the office yesterday, there are 350 independent learners currently working straight with the Cambridge School Classics project, 175 on book one. Of course it drops down, 65 on book two. But down the bottom, these are people, independent learners, who are sitting A-level, entirely never been in front of a teacher, uh, 24 just done the AS level and 17 just done A2. So if we talk about uh, assessing the impact, these are definitely 17 people who would not have been doing A-level Latin uh, 10 years ago. And there are under 1,000 people doing it nationally. And less than 100 from non-selective state schools do Latin A-level every year. So those 17 are important people, as it were. Um, if we go into the website and actually what it looks like in terms of a textbook, they get very important, and I said there needs to be a really close connection visually between the book. They know their way round from the pictures which come at the beginning of each stage. Um, I'm not here to talk about books, but I will tell you this is a bloody good textbook. <laughs> well, a very good textbook. Right. Um, it uh, is got about 170 colour images. It has been really, really carefully thought through. The photographer who is responsible for all of this, Roger Dalladay, is a remarkable man, a drama teacher, Latin teacher, actor. He made all the masks we did for reenacting Greek dra uh, Latin, Roman drama. He took almost all the photographs in here. The first meeting we had when this book was actually printed, this colour here was a different colour. And it was the final rushes. And we were sitting with CUP and their chief designer. And Roger took one look at it and said, no, that's got to go. He said, that's terracotta. I asked for Pompeian red, and I gave you the Pantone number. <laughs> so they had to do it again. So anyway, Roger was very specific about things. Uh, so they can get, <coughs> you can go in, you can choose the book, and you can go into specific stories. Here we have stage eight, which is about gladiators, and here are the stories. And if they click on explore the story, an exploring tool comes up, and they can click on any word and it will give them the information. If you click on Habitabat, it will tell you it comes from Habitat, meaning lives. It doesn't tell you what Habitabat means. It only gives you the information you would find if you looked in the back of the textbook. So, because, but it's very interesting that students that we did research with said this was too easy. It stopped them at learning, they said. They thought it was important that you had to sweat and look up. <laughs> And they actually, we had kids who said, I limit the amount I let myself use the electronic tool because I think that part of the learning process is going through that, which I thought was a very interesting reflection on how different people learn. I'm not in that school myself. I believe that reading Latin, like riding a bicycle, quicker is easier. And that there's something about reading quickly, particularly in terms of vocabulary acquisition. But we won't go there. Now, I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm going to. Uh, I don't really want to cut short the other thing, but I'm going to because I do need to say something about this. This looks a very simple tool, but these words have not been individually parsed and hypertext. Behind all of this is a Latin analyzer, and you can type in any Latin word. I will see if I, uh, it probably won't let me do it. Uh, you can type in any Latin word in any form. Let's take the verb to carry, ferro. It has 240 forms. In the past tense, I carried is tuli, T-U-L-I, from ferro. So if you don't know that, you will never find out the meaning of that word in a standard dictionary, because it only appears under ferro. 
I was very lucky when I was training to be a teacher to be, I have on the course with me someone who is now a computational lexicographer, who <laughs> trained as a PG, a Latin teacher. He lives in Oxford. I will be staying with him tonight. And he wrote a program which analyzes to 95% accuracy any Latin word. We had this made for us in 1995 in order to prepare the text of the Cambridge Latin course. So it was a tool which we bought for a very different purpose for standard book publishing. But Tony said at the time, he said, this is a useful tool. I can make word games with it. So there's a game, um, a, a game where you can, he brings up a square of nine letters and you've got to see how many Latin words you can make up and they've got to be connected. All of these things depend upon that analyzer. It also depends upon a dictionary that it's linked to. So the Pocket Oxford Latin Dictionary, for instance, is Tony's work. Uh, he's taken the head data and then linked it to his own. Actually, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, OED, whatever version for, that's Tony's as well, but that's English. So I'm incredibly lucky to have access to an expert. And particularly lucky because he doesn't, I mean, he writes in C++ or whatever he writes in, but it's a language that can be ported into any, it's future proofing is really good because it works in almost any environment and he can make it work in any environment. So a simple, what looks like a simple thing like that had huge spin-offs. It means there's a, a vocab tester, for instance, that they can call up. There's a dictionary and it's a speaking dictionary online. You go to cambridgescp.com and you go and look at book one, you'll find there's a talking dictionary. So all of this flows from one really important piece of software. And interestingly, there were 268,000 visits in May to the exploring tool, this click and look up. So again, if we're thinking about impact, that's something we, can, we know. Over a quarter of a million visits to this language tool. It has consistently been the most thing most used. On the DVDs, there are great video clips, but actually this is the thing the kids want. Uh, and that was useful data for us. On the subject of um, uh, assessing how things are, if you remember, that was what the situation was in 1998 in terms of distribution. If we go through to 2008, the position has hardly changed. Uh, so I won't say that it's because of the Cambridge Online Latin project, but I do think it has, and in a way I'm more interested in hits on the website, because what we don't know are people, the problem with this data is it assumes people go through to examination level. But I'm actually interested in people who only do it for a year. I mean, the fact that they've actually done it, that they know something about it, is as important in a way as actually who makes it through to this particular hoop. So the ways we assess it. Now, I, I've, I, I've got more things I could show, but I won't. We did evaluation questionnaires before and at the end of doing the, um, the one-year trial. We have got data from interviews. We did a range of things, some of them very specific, and some of them when we, once the website was up, which is much more number crunching. It still remains true that this could not have happened without a serious amount of money. Because um, in, on our own, we, we couldn't have done any of the video filming, uh, and we couldn't either have got the outreach, I think. And it's that question, like crowdsourcing, that single article in the Times, really. It was through that alone that I found the 16 schools with no Latin teacher, who then became our trial schools. So my message is, if you've got an idea, it's worth starting on it. And it's also true, and it comes to a question that you asked at the front, uh, Kylie, Kylie yeah. Yeah, which is about knowing the, the school curriculum. 
what we're going to look at now is exactly about that. I'm going to got 32 minutes. I'm just going to show you. I'm going to show you one more thing, Robert Davis, which is publications that flowed from it, because I think it's important also that this was basically a classroom-based practical exper experiment. But in 2001, Tony and I wrote an article for an American journal which was about the role of uh, uh, electronic technology in the teaching of Latin, which was actually mostly talking about his analyzer. We then, I wrote an article in teacher development, which was about working with schools with non-specialists and the role of ICT in teaching specialist subjects through non-specialist teachers. Uh, uh, and then I've written, I've done a couple of Italian um, papers, uh, this one more general, this one specifically looking at the role of ICT in teaching classical literature, and uh, the Holy Grail uh, individually authored book with CUP, a book on teaching classics, uh, half of which really was a description of what the really information technology, the role of information technology in the teaching of Latin, attitudes, that all sorts of things, but it would not have happened if I hadn't been involved in that project, simply wouldn't I? I used the data a lot in different ways. Right. I'm on the fast track. I'm really racing now. And we're going to go into classics in the English curriculum. Okay, so I've got a little question for you. You've been listening to me droning for about half an hour. Okay, so the question is, out, out of all the things you know about the classical world, literature particularly, what do you think would be the most appealing to pick out and offer seven to 11 year olds. And it can include Greek drama, it can include Catullus, it can love poetry, you name it. Anything that was written by the Greeks or Romans, what would you choose as being the thing that would be most suitable for seven to 11 year olds to learn about? You have two minutes, not a second more. If you're having problems with it, think what aspect of the ancient world kids are most interested in, apart from the Olympic Games. So, if you've read, this was actually, I gather, a test of whether you've read my uh, biopic, because of course it is the Iliad. Uh, and the challenge is how we go from that to these two, who we're going to listen to in a minute. What's the journey that takes place between the opening lines of the Iliad and these two fantastic, brilliant people. I wanted to get permission to use this video, and I went on uh, Facebook, and I found dear old Siobhan, and uh, she said to me at the end of this interview she wanted to be an actress, and she's now in her third year as an, as a, at a drama school in Birmingham. <laughs> and I sent her this. I said, you might like this for your portfolio. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. It's knockout. Anyway. The, and this now, of course, links into what you said, which is storytelling. Because, and it brings together two things. In the national curriculum, funnily enough, classics does appear. All children between the age of 7 and 11 are meant to learn about the Greeks. It is a requirement. But, <laughs> some do more than others. I'll come to the evidence in a minute. What I want you to do is to, and this goes to the question about talking about... Uh, working with kids, let's hear them. Okay, serious literary criticism going on there. Forget about it. Whoa. Okay, now they were talking 12 months after listening to uh, a CD of storytellers. 
So the, the technology was relatively low level. It was just a digitized story. Um, but underlying that, there were some really important things, and in particular this question about getting the actual thing in your head, mm -hmm. this visualization. Yes. And it's very interesting the extent to which I've interviewed kids from age 15 down to 9 who've talked about the fact they see what is happening. I've got a clip of a Polish girl saying that she runs a video, basically, when she's listening to a story being told. And the difference between that, therefore, and Troy the movie or whatever. I mean, there are all sorts of other ways they can access this. But what's also interesting is what they liked. His, he said, what I like about the Iliad is it all links together. Now, actually what he means is, what I like about it is the way the storytellers have created the story so it all links together. Because if you've read the Iliad in translation or in the original, you might not think of it as being a ripping yarn where it was the verb to cliffhanger they've invented. There was cliffhangering even after the first one. But, of course, they understand soaps. They understand the notion of a f an episode finishes with the hook into the next thing. And I watched in this school kids come up uh, come up to the teacher and say, I missed the lesson yesterday, could I spend uh, break time listening to it? So they could take the CD away and they'd sit and listen in, in, their, in break time. It was absolutely extraordinary. And of course what was interesting was, because what we started off, uh, and this is Hugh, one of the storytellers, who's the great nephew of Arthur Ransom. I think that's right. Uh, so he's got storytelling in his blood. And this is Hugh talking to a group of students he'd never met before in the British Museum when we had a launch of the project. And you can see on their faces the engagement. Now, of course, we knew that was okay. You put a storyteller and someone like Hugh is quite striking in appearance and he's got a musical instrument. You'd expect them to go, whoa. When you take them away and you have a CD instead, well, that's interesting. And I watched in a school, I'll show you, um, well, I probably will, um, where it's been used with 80 kids at once. And they still listen absolutely rapt. So, I'm going to go quicker. When you're thinking about projects, you've got to, because this is what people are asked, why? I went to funding bodies and said, I want you to fund two storytellers to create a, why? What are they going to get out of it? And I was told by classical organisations that the Iliad was too complicated, which is interesting. And my answer to that is Harry Potter's complicated. And actually, the more characters, the better, provided that you make them real and they, they have distinguishing features and there's a narrative which weaves them together. They don't mind complicated. His Dark Materials would be another very good example. Um, that there's the, that's the challenge. And of course the Iliad is real. Anyway, I won't go on length. But of course there are practical, we could say, modern reasons. When, we go, when they go and see a dreadful, splendid film like Troy, we want them to be able to criticise it with some knowledge. Um, we won't go into that. Funnily enough, I was thinking about, about cultural heritage in a different way. This rather brilliant, I think, Blair's Achilles heel uh, underneath the statue of Achilles in Hyde Park uh, over Iraq, which shows someone who's a very literate graffiti writer. But it is to do with understanding modern references. After 9-11, the best stealth weapon is still the wooden horse. That's, of course, it makes no sense if you don't know the story of Troy. So there is something about uh, understanding these common reference points we have, whether it's the Bible, whether it's Homer, 
there are these things that we touch on that we, I say, people, educated people tap into, and it's important that we offer this to everybody. Why not? Great story. Um, uh, then links with the First World War. I can never get the uh, Brooks right. They say Achilles in the darkness stirred and Priam and his 50 sons wait all um, amazed and hear the guns and shake for Troy again. Written by Rupert Brooke in 1916, was it? Dardanelles? Anyway, they wait for Troy again. The notion that here you have a place that Troy and the Dardanelles and the problem critical position it is and not surprising and we want to teach historical continuity and a perspective. Um, I could go on, there's a great quote, Gaza and Homer brought in to help drive to improve boys literacy. There is a real issue at 11 to 14 about boys drop off in interest in reading things. It's a dangerous thing to promote Homer on the basis that it, as one head teacher said, panders to boys violent instincts. And it's important that we teach it in a particular way. Why teach it is another reason I said to you that all 7 to 11 year olds should be taught about the Greeks. And these are the topics they're meant to teach 7 to 11 year olds, as will be, I think, kept in the new version of the history curriculum. Athens and Sparta influences with uh, influence on modern world art and architecture. And if we look at, this was a, a survey of the 20 odd teachers that we uh, interviewed, the only one that they really taught in any depth were myths and legends. How many primary school teachers who are teaching a national curriculum which involves all the things that it involves have time to research Greek art and architecture? It is barking mad. But myths and legends, they're happy to teach. It's an extension of English to them. And these are stories, and maybe it isn't Homer, but stories like Midas, for instance, which we might get time to come back to. These are relatively simple stories with a twist to them, which make sense to kids, and which teachers are happy working with. Because it's no point, no use, giving them really interesting material, which actually puts them off. And one of the great things about the storytelling is they don't have to do anything except listen to the CD along with the kids. It's all they have to do. They have to know when to stop and ask questions. But they don't have to know the story of the Iliad. If you ask me to tell the story of the Iliad in two hours, I would struggle. You can go and see Hugh and Daniel. They do it in about two and a half hours. Okay. Other reasons. This is what teachers said. And again, this is going back to seeds of project. The storytelling project that I've been working on started about, I probably have got a timeline in a minute, in about 2000. In 1998, I did some research into the extent to which primary school teachers actually taught the Greek elements of the national curriculum. And this is what some of the teachers said. It has a strong link with other subjects, especially useful with the literacy hour. Another said, I like the way it captures children's imagination. And another said, one special needs teacher and pupil has been so motivated by the myths that he has begun to read willingly and without pressure. His, uh, and his parents cannot believe the change in his attitude. In their words, he's come to life. Well, I mean, that's, to me, such a powerful statement about the strength of those stories. So, to me, it was all about identifying, out of all the world of classics, the jewels that would most work with this age range. And it seemed to me that that... And finally, funnily enough, talking of his dark materials, I wrote to Philip Pullman uh, on the subject of this, and he said, the Iliad is the, it's the best in the world, no question. 
Well, if he says that, I'm, I'm not going to look any further. Okay, I'm going to give a quick project timeline because I would like you to see one or two of the... Um, as I said, this started actually with a funded project looking at the delivery of not a classical thing, well, it was a classical element within the national curriculum. I then, through a colleague, met Hugh Lupton, the storyteller, who came and worked with my students on how to tell stories in the classroom, actually. And over a beer at lunchtime, he said he was looking for funding to, to do a version of the Iliad with his friend uh, Daniel. So in Dan uh, I found the money for them in 2000 to record War with Troy. And then in 2001, we piloted it. Uh, and then in 2003, when we felt we had enough data, we then had a national conference and an official launch. So we go through from, and all the work I've ever done with schools has involved piloting, recreating, piloting again. And it's that iterative process which irons out problems. Very simple example. We had um, uh, Hugh and Daniel like to use epithets to describe gods and goddesses. So it's not Poseidon, it's Poseidon, Lord of the Tumbling Foam, which is really helpful in actually in them visualising and hearing it. And they had Oxide Athena. And, and one of the kids said, what's a battery doing? Because they thought Oxide, O-X-I-D-E, not Ox-Ide. So we had to say, hero with the eyes of an ox, Oxide. <laughs> so that little things like that we picked up. Uh, and it also has to be said, with the Iliad, if you take out the sex and the violence, like with EastEnders, you're not left with much. So we had to find a way of doing seven to 11-year-old versions of, uh, uh, had its moments. Um, Hugh and Daniel, of course, were lucky because they often perform at uh, Hay Festival, so we had a way of disseminating it, but that's amongst adults, and that's an interesting issue. But on the basis of that, uh, they, they did return from Troy, basically the story of, of the Odyssey. Um, and I continued to work. I interviewed those two students you saw in 2006, I think. But the interesting thing is this didn't take off. Um, uh, the schools that I've worked with are still using it 12 years later. But it is that issue about how you persuade someone to give up. It is a minimum of 15 hours of teaching on an epic poem. And unless they see the outcomes, the fruit of the work, they cannot be convinced. And unless you get them to a conference and show them and get them, it's really difficult. And even on a website, we have not found a way yet of selling it, as it were. There's another problem, which we've learnt a lot from, and I'm telling this really because to reflect on, on hmm, projects and things that don't always go well, um, primary school teachers simply have too much on their plates. And realistically, they will stick wherever they can to what they know. And I would do the same in their circumstances. And finding resources for primary school teachers, and you may well have materials, it really needs careful thought. Look, you can have the best materials in the world, but that next step, which is getting them to use those materials and take ownership of them and integrate it into their teaching programme, is another whole issue. Which was why huh, we changed direction. And um, in 2011, uh, we revised it as a secondary project. Uh, there were issues about teaching uh, some aspects of the Iliad to children aged 9 or 10, um, but the practical reason is that it's easier to get through subject specialists at secondary level 
They, they meet as a group. They have organisations as a group. So there is a, the National Association of Teachers of English, NATE, which is an automatic conduit for research, for projects, uh, for sharing of ideas, for conferences. And funnily enough, although it's a really thorny issue, they are meant to teach speaking and listening. Speaking and listening as well as reading and writing. Now, controversially, in the revised national curriculum as published in February, they removed the need for speaking and listening, which always seems to be rather extraordinary, given that 95% of the population spend 95% of their time speaking and listening, not reading and writing. The notion that somehow, because they do that, they don't need to think about it. Anyway, it has, I understand, been restored under the latest version. But teachers themselves are interested in actually how you teach speaking and listening. One of the things that you can learn through listening to Hugh and Daniel is, for instance, about intonation, pace of voice, all sorts of practical things which models ways the use of your voice for effect. But also, funnily enough, it teaches things that you could listen to if you listen to questioners, uh, um, Prime Minister's question time, like tricolon, like all sorts of things. Will I, I will not mention the fact that, I will not mention, you know, you hear all those repetitions and all those things. Well, of course, they're all embedded into the storytelling of Hugh and Daniel. But what we did also was to take stories from Ovid's Metamorphoses, which are much shorter stories, because it was to provide a taster with the hope that people would say, God, that's so fantastic, let's do the big one. But you can take just a single story. So we've got Midas in two parts. We've got Daedalus and Icarus. We've got Theseus and the Minotaur. We've got Echo and Narcissus. And these are stories, all of which have powerful resonances. Actium, great story, Actium. And of course, at the Tate last year, there was a whole exhibition around the story of Actium. Um, and to disseminate it, we offered English PGCE uh, courses a workshop. And I go out, and last year I did... Uh, I talked to nine English PGCE courses, uh, and in the coming year, uh, it's going... Oh, we launched the website, which we'll come on to in a second. Uh, in 2013-14, I shall be going to 17 PGCE courses to do three-hour workshops on storytelling and the use of classical stories. But you can see that is a 15-year commitment. And for you, if you're at the beginning of your careers, this is... <laughs> It's still worth it. I started in 1991 as a teacher. I had no research experience. I'd never filmed in schools. I'd never worked with kids in, a, uh, in any other format than teaching. Um, and I've had to learn both project management. I've had to learn, I've had to learn about the use of data, so on and so forth, educational research methods, and so on. All of this acquired, but I still, when I look back, think the key things are always your own individual interests. It's the thing that drives everything I've done. I, this storytelling project absolutely grew out of my first teaching experience in 1975 when I saw a teacher in a very difficult school in East London telling stories. No, no, no props, nothing, just 25 kids who were absolutely keyed in. You, know, you could uh, hear a pin drop. And I knew there had to be something really right for that to be happening. But it goes to very fundamental questions, that I say, about why we teach and why, why, why outreach is important. That, what are we trying to achieve? As far as I'm concerned, the only thing that matters when children leave school is that they continue wanting to learn. Because I think the real problem is if they think, that's it. I've finished now. Now I live. And so it's, not, it's a continuum. And that means finding things that interest them and letting them run with it. 
Okay, so I'm going to show you one or two bits of project I've done. I've not been really fair to the Iliad project, but I, I think there are probably more things to have learned, I think, from the... Uh, I'm going to talk about what project outcomes there are. Uh, two CDs, actually now three, and I've got for you a CD, a ta taster of classical stories to take away with you. So you can listen on your car CD when you go home. Um, we also produce visual materials. Um, and this is a very simple practical thing. Uh, we actually produce... Uh, this isn't very good for photocopying. It's a really interesting picture. We won't have time to look at it in close detail. I was going to. I brought it in case I could get you doing a job. So what we did is we turned it into a line drawing and makes it much more easy for photocopying. Uh, practical things like that matter to teachers. And these are available as free downloadable PDFs on the website. So they, these are all... Now, they're not free. I mean, that's to say they've been paid for, as it were, but we are making them available for nothing. There is a still a print. There is a print guide um, for those. That uh, costs a lot of money, but you only need one copy per school, which takes them through questions they might like to ask and so on and so forth. But we've now gone over... And it's very interesting. We produced a website last year, and I've got five schools, secondary schools I'm working with at the moment, and they took one look at the website I created and said, crap. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm glad you broke it to me gently. Uh, <laughs> so they said, no, 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 it's been far too wordy. You know, we want to just be able to go to the website, nice and simple. So, okay, so this is what I'm showing it to them. Funnily enough, on Saturday, we're having a meeting a year on. I shall be interested to hear what they say about it in its latest incarnation. But... Um, the idea is that anyone can come here. It shouldn't be designed for, for actually for teachers. Anyone who wants that, you lot, can go and listen to Hugh and Daniel's version of uh, the Iliad on this. It's only available as streaming, not as downloading, because we have copyright issues with Hugh and Daniel, and so there are, you can, uh, of course, if you've got the relevant software, I won't say any more. Okay. Um, not that you lot would ever think of doing that. So we have the stories, and again, visual images are something that we do try and keep uh, as a theme. Metamorphoses, tales of change, they can you choose through, and you go down to a granular level. Here we are, Actian. I haven't got it live because I'm always terrified of things like this if the internet goes down, so these are only screen dumps. But you can see the idea. Um, and at the bottom, there is Explore the Story, and if you click on that, you then do get a summary of the story, suggested key themes, teacher's notes, but it's meant to be more granular the further you go down. So people can just go along and listen to it if they want, or they can, if they're going to use it in the classroom, have some starting points um, for their help. And we've just got the list of the stories down the side. This has been useful because we've only set this website up really for the last six months, but we've already got some data. This is the University of Cambridge, uh, their, their media service, SMS, uh, and it's quite interesting actually looking down just to see it lists um, the in order of uh, institution, actually this one's in the wrong order I think, oh, pity, uh, because actually the Faculty of Education is about 10th and this here shows the data for downloads of resources from the Faculty of Education website. And we can see that classics in the English curriculum is there, war with Troy is there, story... So within the Faculty of Education, we are getting not a bad hit rate. And if we actually look, uh, uh, it's interesting, there was a peak in November when I... <laughs> in October, I was doing a lot of uh, talks to PGCE students, funnily enough, and then I was out again in March and April. And that's probably why there are the spurs there. 
But it's also helpful because I can see which stories have been the most popular. Erisichthon, which is rather, yeah, it's quite a challenging story because he ends up eating himself. Um, uh, but uh, yes, it's to do with greed, uh, <laughs> is a cracking story. Um, so that's one way that I'm, we're only now beginning to assess impact, but we have made no attempt to launch the website or do anything with it yet because we're still working on it. You will find on the CD that the URL is given on there so that you can add to my hit list. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but for me, when I look at the impact of this sort of work, I'm much more interested in student, what students do by way of response. And I'm going to show you um, three things. I'm going to show you, um, this is an 11-year-old boy um, in a school uh, north of Cambridge, a non-selective state school. This lad here was so fascinated in the fact he was being filmed that he kept turning around, he'll put you off. Because um, I just turn up with a very little video camera and I just sort of, so the, the camera work is, you know, it's very haphazard. Um, and you can see in the background there are lots of notes with the story, the storyline. And what's very interesting is seeing the way the teachers mediate. Here's the material, actually what they, how they run with it. And they've been given the task of writing a piece of responsive, a response to the part in the story where um, Priam, the king of Troy, crosses the plain to go to Achilles' hut uh, and ask for his, the body of his son back. Uh, and it really is the heart of the Iliad. I mean, it's why it's the, because Achilles does, in the end, give the body back. Um, and what clearly this teacher had done was to show them images of the First World War, to give them an idea of no man's land. And you can see it, you'll see it um, in, um, or hear it, in this lad's reading of his own poem. And I want you to think this is part of a speaking and listening, and just see what you think. Silver wilderness, the moon shining silently, illuminating the wilderness, the mud torn from the earth by wheel and foot, never to rest again. Bloody bodies, horses once proud, falling with their chariots, carrying their masters, all together crashed into the silver mud. Swords and shields, scattered useless, never to protect the attack again, caught in tattered trees, glinting in the silver light. Dogs fighting like soldiers over the bodies of warriors. Rats scurrying through the shadows in the illuminated wilderness under the light of a helpless, innocent moon. Yeah, so that's, I think that's a terrific piece of work. I think the, and I think the delivery, if I'd just given you the, if you'd seen it, it would only give you a quarter of the impact. And that's what speaking and listening is all about. The pace at which he does it. The, the, just the modulation of his voice, I think, is absolutely terrific. Um, we're going to look at a different type of storytelling, in a way. This was the first school I worked with, um, and uh, the beginning of Hugh and Daniel's telling starts with Imagine a Mountain, and, and it, imaging is what this is all about. And this is, again, the school, another school in East London I worked with, and the teacher there taught them, in uh, 85 of them at once, every Friday for 12 Fridays. Now that's a heck of a job teaching, I believe me. Sustaining a narrative when you only have it once a week. Um, and this is, uh, this is, at the end of it, she said it'd be nice if we could do something and they broke the story up into parts and they tell the story. So they don't reenact it, they tell it.
Okay, now this was a school where the teacher said there were issues about their confidence in speaking and listening. You just wouldn't know, would you? And, and they, I think to me when I look at it, I think they've really taken ownership of the story. It's, it's yeah. that they really, it, it matters to them. Mm. And, and they, they performed it at Barkingtown Hall and they were very oh. pleased with themselves. Mm. But as I say, in terms of impact, for me, that's, that goes along with, that's what motivates me uh, to want to find ways of uh, promoting it further. Um, and, and it always it comes to me that you find out all sorts of things. When you, I've got lots of clips, for instance, of kids talking about the story in a way they never would when they're writing, because a fundamental problem is that particularly boys don't like writing. I've got a lad said, well, I, I thought, I didn't write it down because it would take too long. I thought, and then it was a really interesting point about Achilles. And of course, that's we need to tap in because you can. Uh, it's a fundamental aspect of teaching. It's not teaching people only on the basis of what they do, but it's on the basis of what they could do. And finding out what kids could do rather than what they do, you can only do by talking to them. You can't do it by just judging their written work alone. That's my lot because I know it's half past and I know you've got lots to do. So, uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.